It's all about Him. We want to ascribe glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving to our God. Amen. I'm telling you, it's so easy to get self-centered. It's so easy to think about me and 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 me, you know? And But I'm telling you what, without Him, we have no life. Without Him, we have no real future that we would want. Amen. But with Him, He loves it. He once said he wanted us to come together corporately and ascribe glory and honor to him. He's the one said for us to clap our hands and to lift our hands and to shout praises unto him. To use the strength of instruments to praise his name and sing of songs loud together. To use the cymbals, the resounding cymbals and the stringed instruments and the horns and, and to praise the Lord. He said, you can even praise me with a dance. I'm still waiting for somebody to get some dancing going on in here. Amen. Yes, I know. We got it. We got it. But we're going to catch on. We're going to get a whole dance crew going. Praise the Lord with the dance. And let everything, let everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. We just give him glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving today. It is good to see you again. I just look at your smiling faces and I just know from
It's not our job to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It is not our job to convict the world of sin or righteousness or judgment. The Holy Spirit does that. It is our job to witness to the gospel and to make disciples. This is a charge that was given to us by the Lord himself. The scope and the breadth of this opportunity is remarkable. Described by Jesus with words like, in all the nations, in all the world, and to every creature. The opportunity is both local and global. The famous words of Jesus in Acts 1 is that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And maybe the key words for us in that famous verse are the small words in and and. Often we consider Acts chapter 1 as a progression, and, act, and, and it is indeed as we see it through the book of Acts. But it's not that we are to be witnesses to Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, or, or, or to Judea, or to Samaria, or to Hampton Roads, or to Baltimore, but in them, to be witnesses where we live and work. And it's not from Jerusalem then to Judea, and then from Judea then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, but in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The evangelism of Jerusalem is not some accomplished task. The evangelism of Baltimore is not some accomplished task. I suppose either is the evangelism of Hampton Roads or, or Virginia Beach. The charge of the Lord is local for us to be in as well as to move and. And both locally and globally, this is the job of the church. It's not the responsibility of the pastor. It's not the responsibility of, of some evangelists. It's not the responsibility of those who have a particular burden for the lost. This is the job of the church. Not every Christian is an evangelist, but every church should be evangelistic, working together, committed together to proclaiming the gospel and to making disciples for Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that from you, from you corporately, the word of the Lord sounded forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, those were their local provinces, but in every place your faith in God has gone out. So I trust it can be said of you. So I trust it can be said of my home church, Forge Road, that the word of the Lord has sounded forth and our faith has gone out. Now here in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking together an account of the life of Jesus that is in all three of the synoptic Gospels. It is in Matthew and in Luke as well as in Mark. And I expect this story is going to be familiar to many. But as we study it out, and as we get beyond the broad outlines and look at details, this account can go from being generally familiar to being very compelling, and at least it is for me. Our focus is going to be Mark 5, but, we're, but to start, we're going to start back in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, with the words, on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. 
Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been brought apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, my God, that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Then he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. The herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit it, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed, and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him by the sea. May the Lord bless, giving us a good understanding of his word together. The account of the Gospels, all that Jesus began to do and to teach, occur in a small area geographically, but in a crazy quote of political entities. A generation before, a man that history knows as Herod the Great had risen through the military to establish and build a kingdom which he maintained by staying in close contact, close allegiance with Rome. One way that Herod advanced his career was by getting married. He would always marry up, and he got married nine times. He would really appreciate the marriage course that you all were going to talk he had seven sons by five of those wives. He named them all Herod. That's why rulers named Herod keep showing up all over the New Testament. And why historians always use the middle names of the sons when referring to them. In the Gospels, we meet Herod the Great near the end of his life, where he encounters wise men from the east who have come following his star and seeking the one who's born, King of the Jews. Herod dies in 4 BC, and by his will, his kingdom is, is split into three 
son. In the south is Judea. Herod left that to his son, Herod Archelaus. Up in Galilee is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the man who executed John the Baptist and sat in judgment of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. And further up north is Herod Philip in Iconium, part of the Golan Heights. In Judea, Archelaus was a disaster, a combination of ego and incompetence and volatility. We read that when Joseph was coming back from Egypt with Mary and the young Jesus, he, was, he did not want to go to Judea because of Archelaus. That's why he, he, uh, he went to Nazareth in Galilee. And so in 6 AD, Augustus Caesar removed him, banished him to Gaul, and brought Judea under direct control, direct Roman rule, making Judea a Roman province with a series of Roman governors. And in 26 AD, the Emperor Tiberius named a military officer, actually a man who was from the cavalry, named Pontius Pilate, as the governor. So when the curtain goes up on the Gospel accounts, as the stage is set in Luke chapter 3, it's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which we call 28 AD. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. Herod Antipas is the tetrarch, that means the ruler of a part in Galilee. His brother, Herod Philip, is tetrarch of Ituria. Annas and Caiaphas are high priests, for the word of God comes to John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to look at that region that I have outlined. On the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You don't see a picture there. You don't see a standard. You don't even see any colors. And that's because this is not a province, it's not a kingdom, it's not an organized political entity at all. Rather, this is called the Decapolis. And that name tells you what it is. <coughs> as Greek values, as Hellenistic values spread across the world by Alexander, they would establish cities, and the word for a Greek city is a polis. We live in a Hellenized world. That name, that word has come down to us. I'm from Maryland. The capital of Maryland is Annapolis. Go to Indiana, and you get the Indianapolis. Or in Minnesota, there's Minneapolis. And Superman lives in Metropolis. <laughs> well, in this area is the Decapolis. Ten cities, independent of each other, generally cooperating, independent of Judea, Galilee, or of any political organization. Rome greatly encouraged their growth and independence, importing Hellenistic secular values building cosmopolitan cities linked together by Roman roads. The economy was booming, and what passed for religion was the worship of the emperor, the most politically correct, correct religion you can imagine. One of these ten cities is Gadara. It's five miles southeast of the sea, and it's here in the Decapolis, here close to Gadara, that the events of Mark chapter 5 take place. Gadara was a big place. 
The ruins are extensive. They include the remnants of two amphitheaters, a basilica, a temple, colonnades, large residences, an aqueduct, all showing the size and the importance of the city. It dominated the region, which became known as the land of the Gadarenes. And here, on the south shore of the Sea of Galilee, an ancient harbor was discovered. It was discovered in 1985 by a team of archaeologists. And it, 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 it found that harbor that serviced the city. The remnants of the pier are 500 meters long. They ran along the shoreline, and there was the remains of a community. The historian Josephus refers to small villages on the shoreline that I suppose was the link between the city and the harbor. And modern, modern archaeology has also found the ancient cemetery, the tombs that are spoken of in Mark chapter 5. Now, understanding the political geography is very important in understanding what happens in Mark chapter 5 and in understanding its application to us today. The great majority of Jesus' ministry, ministers for about four years, that takes place in Galilee, in the Jewish cities up on the north and west of the sea, like Capernaum, or the Jewish towns and hamlets that are in the hills west of the sea, like Nazareth and Cain and, and uh I'm sorry, Nazareth the name in Cana. In Mark chapter 4, he is in Bethsaida. But now, Jesus is going to cross over to the other side of the sea. From the northern side of the sea to the southern. Meaning that for the first time, he is going to go outside of the political boundaries of Galilee and Judea. Now today, Jesus has certainly encountered Romans and other Gentiles, but that's on an individual basis. That's those living within the structure and confines of a Jewish culture. This is different. For the first time, Jesus is outside of a Jewish culture, outside of a society structured around Jewish law. He is in the Decapolis, and this place is Roman to its core, there is nothing Jewish about it. In verse 11, we read about a herd of swine, a large herd, about 2,000 pigs, up there in the steep hills that rise up out of the sea. And these are not wild boar. In verse 14, we read about herdsmen who fed the pigs. These pigs were a domesticated part of the economy. When the pigs were drowned, the herdsmen ran to the city to tell people about it. It raised a commotion. It seems the pigs were part of the economy. They were part of the diet. They were part of the life of the city. This place is not Jewish at all. When Jesus got into that boat in Bethsaida and told his disciples to cross over to the other side, that was 12 miles of open water, but it was a lot more than that. It was crossing political lines. It was crossing racial lines. It was crossing cultural lines. See that phrase in Mark 4.35, on the same day? There in Bethsaida, on the north side of the sea, Jesus had been teaching all day. It was a full and an eventful day. Much had happened in Mark chapter 4. It was the day that a certain scribe made a bold and famous promise. Teacher, he said, I will follow you wherever you go. And preachers love to pound that guy and point out he never actually followed Jesus anywhere. But in reading this account, I wondered if he never followed Jesus anywhere because he found out that where Jesus was going next 
just as a copy. In verse 7, we get the words of the man from the tomb, the words of the legion. What have I to do with you, Jesus? Or in other words, Jesus, what are you doing here? We don't have anything to do with you. Not here in the Decapolis. You are not supposed to be here. Jesus, you're supposed to be over there. You're supposed to be on the other side of the city. You're supposed to be on your side of the city. You don't have any business here on this side. Over there, everything's religious, and that's right. But over here, everything's secular. Over there, everything's traditional. Over here, everything's sophisticated. And you are not supposed to be here. What do we have to do with you? Now, that's a very important question. That's the same question that our society asks today. It asks it in different places. It asks it in different contexts. But it's essentially the same question. Many people think that the gospel belongs within the walls of the church. Jesus is fine there. You can believe what you want. You can study what you want. You have every right to do so in peace and safety. But take it into the business community. Take it into the schools. Take it into the jails. Take it into the government. Take it even into our neighborhoods and voices will be raised like the voice of the street of the legion. What does this have to do with us? What is Jesus doing here in our secular, sophisticated, and very politically correct world? What does Jesus in the Bible and the gospel have to do with business? How can we have it in the schools? What can be in control in government? What is Jesus doing here? And it's not just the words of the legion. This is the words of people in the city. We read in verse 17 that they told Jesus, please leave. Matthew tells us that the whole city came out to tell Jesus to please leave. Luke says it wasn't just the whole city, but it was the whole multitude of the surrounding region. Everybody told Jesus, please leave. This chapter in Mark might sound strange and weird and far away, but put this in modern dress, this is a very current. Now, just as the political geography of the region is important to understand the account in Mark 5, so is the topography. These pictures are taken from the Sea of Galilee as we're going towards the Decapolis. There's one on top is the view that Jesus would have had early in the morning. And then below, the, the view as he would have come close to that pier. You see that the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee rises quickly and steeply into the mountains. That's what we call it part of what we call the Golan Heights. We read in verse 11 about the mountains and about the steep place where the swine stampeded into the sea. I have uh, put two verses here together from Mark chapter 5 to see them together. And then we can talk about this man who met Jesus. Verse 2 says that when Jesus came out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And verse 6 says that he saw Jesus from afar, and he ran and worshipped him. The Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of expediency. It seems like everything in the Gospel of Mark happens very fast. I love 
when I do Bible study. The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters. The word immediately occurs 36 times. More than twice in every chapter on average, something happens immediately. And 12 more times, we read about someone running or fleeing, including, by the way, John Mark himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it is in this account. The man runs to Jesus. The swine run to destruction. The herdsmen fled to the city. To Mark, there's an urgency, there's an energy about everything in the gospel. Put these two verses side to side, you can see it. What has to happen for salvation to come to the world? What, has to, what had to happen for salvation to come to you and me? Jesus has to come. The Spirit of God has to move. And the person himself has to act. And there is an urgency in each one. Jesus acted with urgency. He's up in Bethsaida. He's on the north side of the sea. He's teaching a multitude of people. But that same day, he's going to cross to the other side. Jesus doesn't say, this can wait until tomorrow. I'll be fresher tomorrow. He's going to push off that same day. The verse says that they took him in the boat as he was. No, let's get ready. No, let's get packed. He's going now. I submit to you that if Jesus Christ acts with energy and purpose, we should too. The words of the Lord are in the plural. Let us cross over. Not I'm going to cross over, or not I'm going to take two or three of you and cross over, but this is something that we all do together in the unity of purpose, in one purpose with the Lord and with one another. This trip across the sea is the famous account where Jesus fell asleep in the stern of the boat. He must have been physically exhausted. And the storm came up, and Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. Right then, nothing was more important to getting, than getting to the other side. Why? What was his urgency? We're not expressly told, but I think it was for this man. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a parable about a shepherd that leaves 99 sheep, goes out looking for the one who's lost, and Jesus says he searched until he found it. Didn't search until it was dark, didn't search until he was tired, didn't search until he had to get back, he searched until he found it. To Jesus Christ, that's not a nice story. He's, on, he's with the multitude on the north side of the sea. He's gonna leave that multitude on the north side of the sea. He'll be back tomorrow. He pushes himself beyond exhaustion. He sails through the night. He sails through the storm to reach this one man. How does he do that? He does that through the combined efforts of the disciples. How does the gospel move forward today? It moves forward through our combined efforts. And at the same time that Jesus is acting, so is the Spirit of God. Jesus we can see. The Spirit of God, we cannot. The Spirit of God moves like the wind. You cannot see where it's coming from. You cannot see where it goes. You cannot make it come. You cannot make it go. But you can feel its force. Boy, did we feel its force on the Outer Banks last week. You can feel its force. You can see its impact. And you can hear. The verse says this man saw Jesus from afar. He had to be high up. 
high up in those mountains to see Jesus from so far off. And if he was up there in those mountains, up there looking out over the sea, what really could he have made out? I mean, he could see a boat coming, I suppose. Actually, Mark says that there were several boats sailing together. I don't suppose he could actually make out the people on the boat, and even if he could, he had never seen Jesus. Yet somehow, he knew that Jesus Christ was on that boat. And somehow, he knew that salvation was coming with him. And when he saw that, he started to run. Now, there are some who suggest that it was the demons in him who saw and understood and drove him to run, but I don't think so. I think if it was the demons who compelled to run, he would have run in the opposite direction. But the power of the Spirit of God could pierce through his affliction. He understood enough, and now he's running as fast as he can. He's running down that mountainside. He's running through the city streets. He's rushing towards that harbor, through that small village, past men getting ready for work that day, running down to that pier as that boat is pulling up and tying up so that as Jesus is stepping out of the boat, immediately he is there to meet him. Seemingly against all odds, Jesus has traveled across the sea in a storm, and this man has run down a mountain to a harbor to meet together at exactly the right moment. And I'm going to tell you something that I trust you already know. There is nothing in the world better than the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, when salvation comes, whether it's in your hometown or somewhere the world away, it's no accident. It is no happenstance. I do not contend that it is predetermined, but I know this, that Jesus Christ is seeking the lost, and the Holy Spirit is seeking, purposefully, urgently, searching, and our faith needs to do the same. Now, time does not permit us to discuss the legion of the demons or the troubles of this man, and most of the things that I could say about it would, ri would rise to a little more than speculation. But there's one thing I do want to highlight. It is often pointed out that this man's condition is a graphic picture of our sin as God sees it. Something that we can't control. Something that's destructive in all of us. Something that society has no answer for. Just as those in the region would try to bound him by chains. But I want to make note of something frightening in the exchange between Jesus and the legion. Mark says that the legion begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. The impact of those words could get by us, so let's take a minute. Luke records it this way. They begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. The abyss is the biblical word for the bottomless pit where Satan will one day be bound. We read in the book of Jude that demons were once angels who lost their prior state and are bound with everlasting chains under the darkness. And Jude does not say they are bound in the darkness, but under it. This legion had come from the abyss. It had come from the place under the darkness. He knew what they knew what it was like. And they begged Jesus not to have to go back. 
Some years ago, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association decided that Baltimore, Maryland would be a good place for what they today call a festival, what used to be called a, a crusade. And they sent in a team uh, to meet with clergy in Baltimore and with Christian business leaders. And one of the most important, and one of the important matters at the beginning was to agree on a chair, someone who would take ultimate responsibility and oversight for the entire event, build a team throughout the city to make this happen, and it would be a multi-year commitment. And in a moment of obvious delusion, the BGEA uh, and local groups asked me. Uh, as a lawyer, I work with many churches, many Christians in business. I run an organization called the Christian Professional Network, so there was already something of a structure in place. And for three years, it was a wonderful experience to pull different parts of the city across geographic and denominational lines to work together in an effort that brought 100,000 people to Camden Yards over three days. It was actually uh, the last time that Billy Graham ever preached publicly. There are many great stories that I can tell you, but I want to relate one because these verses remind me of it. In the months leading up to the event, the BGEA sent in a coordinator who I worked with closely as we headed towards the festival itself, making decisions of what the program itself would look like. And as you can imagine, there was some discussion about who was going to do what at the festival, most of which went very smoothly with a great sense of unity and teamwork. But there was one meeting with a group that, uh, in a word, thought that their role should be more prominent. They talked to my coordinator, they talked with me about, they thought that they were perhaps being overlooked, and they said that they needed a more prominent role to get their people motivated. And the coordinator looked across the table and he said, you know, I'm sure that each one of you has many friends and neighbors, family, people you go to work with. And one day, each one of them is really, really going to die unless the Lord comes. And those who do not know Jesus Christ are really, really going to go to hell. And if that is not sufficient motivation for you, there's nothing in the world that I can do or say that ever will be. And I have never forgotten that day. This legion knew what it was like under the darkness. Sometimes people tell jokes about hell, but this legion knew what it was like under the darkness and begged Jesus not to have to go back. As our time winds down this morning, I want to focus our attention on one verse, Mark chapter 5, verse 20, because really, I've spoken to you for a little more than 30 minutes just to get to this verse. In verses 18 and 19, Mark sets the scene. The miracle is done, the man is restored and well. This doesn't really impress the people of the region. They're more concerned with the economic value of the swine than the salvation of the man, and really not much has changed in our world. They want Jesus to leave. 
There on the pier, as Jesus is getting back into the boat, the man who had the legion begged to come with him. Now the, city of the, pe the, now the people of the city had begged Jesus to leave, and he did. And the demons had begged Jesus to be sent into the pigs, and they did. And if you consider the purpose of prayer to get stuff that you ask for, like you're placing an order on Amazon, then their prayers were successful. They got what they asked for. Then there's this man. Now, he's nobler than those in the town. He's nobler than the demons, certainly. And his request seems good and right. Lord, I want to be with you. And many of us, maybe every one of us, would say the same today. Lord, I'd rather be with you. But Jesus, who said yes to the populace and said yes to the demons, said no to this man. Jesus tells him to go home, tells him to go to his friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for him. Jesus, who would tell the apostles, go to the end of the earth, tells this man, go home. Tell your friends, act locally. I know that a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tim spoke to you about territorial breakthrough. That was going to be this man's territory. The great movie director John Ford, he was he's most well known for directing John Wayne Westerns like uh, Stagecoach and The Searchers and Fort Apache and uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. At the start of the process of, of making a movie, he would have all of his actors write out a biography of their character to the point of the start of the story. What happened to this character before the start of the story? I'd really like to know this man's biography before Mark 5. I mean, this man who lived among the tombs, he had a home. He once lived at a home. He had friends. They were going to be his mission field. And so he went back to his home, back to his friends, and then through the city and then through the whole region, telling what Jesus had done for him. And consider that when he started to tell this story, he was the only one. There's one mention of some people from the Decapolis who had come to Galilee to hear Jesus, but from what we can tell, this man was the only one in the entire region who would witness for Christ. You see, on the other side of the sea, on the northern side, the western side, up in Galilee, each town had a synagogue where the law of Moses was studied and taught and where the prophets were read every Sabbath. In Galilee and in Judea, the Passover and the feasts were all observed, pointing to Christ. The twelve went out. Seventy disciples went out, two by two, preaching the kingdom of God, empowered to do miracles. And there's Jesus himself going through the cities and towns and villages and hamlets with the same purpose and determination to seek the lost that he had brought to the land of the Gadarenes. All that's happening on the northern and western shores of the sea. On the other side, in that secular world with its politically correct religion, Jesus had been there for one day, and there was just this one man. Now, this man can't teach the law of Moses and the prophets, 
This is the Decapolis. He doesn't know the law of the prophets. They don't know the law and the prophets. He's not empowered to do miracles. He has no support team. He has no financial backers. He has no ministry structure. He is armed only with his testimony. And one day in the resurrection, I really want to meet this guy. Because when Jesus comes back a second time to the Decapolis, there are 4,000 men plus women and children who come out to hear and see him. See, when Jesus, when Jesus came the first time, there was no delegation to meet him. There were no anxious crowds. There were no curious onlookers. But now, great multitudes are coming, and they're bringing him the lame and the blind and the mute and the maimed and many others, and they see Jesus. They hear Jesus. They glorify the God of Israel. By the way, just notice that phrase. Remember, this is a Gentile community. It doesn't say they glorify the God of their fathers or the God of Abraham like you would expect in a Jewish audience, but a God new to them. Salvation that was new to them. A God who had sent his son. The feeding of the 4,000 occurs when Jesus comes back to the Decapolis. My brothers and sisters, do not ever underestimate the value of your testimony. Do not ever underestimate the value of what you do and say for Jesus Christ. Because you and me, well, we go to, and we work in, and we live in places where they think Jesus is not supposed to be. And we move in circles where the scriptures may not be well known, where the power of Christ is viewed skeptically, where spiritual gain counts for little, economic gain counts for more, and maybe you might be the only one. You and I have opportunity daily to show his compassion, to join him in seeking the lost, in bringing hope to the hopeless, to being, to bringing, and to bringing more than hope, to bringing the deliverance of the gospel. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't want anybody to draw the wrong conclusions. I'm not saying everybody here has to be an evangelist, and not, indeed not everybody is. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. I hate it when I sit and listen to a speaker who's trying to guilt me into something. Rather, I'm talking to us together, rather than just as individuals. We started this discussion in Mark 4.35. Let us cross over to the other side. I love the plural of that verse. Let us cross over together, together with him, together with one another. Not every Christian is an evangelist, but every church should be evangelistic. Every Christian should find a role, his role, her role, in delivering the gospel. This verse, Mark 4.35, is where the journey to the ends of the earth began, to cross over to the other side. Doesn't have to be the other side of the world. It could be the other side of town. Could be the other side of the street. May the Lord bless you in your efforts. May the Lord bless the ministry and the testimony of this church. And may the Lord bless the gospel wherever it goes. Thank you so much for listening to me today.
appreciate you. Praise the Lord. Yes, let's receive the word that God has definitely brought through his servant to us today. And uh, the greatest thing this gentleman ever had happened to him was get an encounter with Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ personally. And I pray today that you have done the same. If not, he has made himself available to you. Just as he came to that place in the Decapolis, he has come to you. He has come. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you placed your faith in Christ? If not, I beg you, I encourage you to do so today. Oh, he, his presence brings deliverance. His presence brings cleansing. His presence brings salvation if you will receive the Lord. Paul said it this way, if you'll believe that God has raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that you've surrendered to his lordship, then you shall be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Everybody that's tuning in, everybody that's listening in this audience, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, God, we thank you that you have not left us in our state of lostness. You've not left us uh, in that place where we have no hope, but you have sent hope to us. You have sent the plan of salvation to us. You have sent the gift of heaven to us. Jesus, Jesus, the Son of the living God. Jesus, we receive you into our hearts and in our lives this day. And Lord, we know that you are the Son of God, that you have been raised from the dead. And in your resurrection power, Lord God, we surrender to your Lordship. We want to follow you and serve you and honor you all the days of our life. Lord, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to come and to receive your, your presence and your healing and your deliverance and your cleansing and your sanctification in our lives. We thank you, Holy Spirit, as you are helping us navigate all that God has for us even now. And Lord God, we thank you that we can now rise up and go forward, just like as this man did with a mission, with a purpose, and with a plan that was laid out by you, Jesus. So we thank you for that now, in Jesus' name, amen. And I would say to each and every one of you, the words that Jesus gave to this man, I would give unto you. I think it was that 19th verse, he says, go home, go home, and tell your friends what great things God has done for you. Go home, tell them what God has done for you and the great compassion that he has shared with you. I'm here to tell you God loves you more than you could ever imagine, and God has done more for you than you probably ever realized. We serve a good God, and let our, let our salvation experience, let our new birth experience, let our walk with him be one that changes the lives of others for the good. Let us also, I'm telling you, Jesus came back, 4,000 men plus the wives and the children, over 10, 12,000 people because of this man's testimony. Let you and I do the same thing. Let us go home and listen to the words of Jesus and obey the words of Jesus and tell our friends what great things God has done for us and the great compassion he has shared. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I, I just want to pray a prayer 
to ordain each and every one here today to go forward into their homes, to go back into the workplace, the marketplace, to go back into the schools, to go back into the highways and the byways, and to tell the great things that you have done in their life, to testify to your goodness and of your great compassion. Lord, I pray they would go and obey your word, and as they do, your kingdom shall expand in a tremendous way. To you be the glory, the honor, and the praise, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Come on, give God a big applause, amen. He's worthy.